Hi, folks. Welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings of inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I am your co-host, Nadia Butt. I'm an organizational development and belonging strategist. And as always, I am joined by my friend and colleague, Rob Hadley, a people and culture strategist specializing in DE&I and people analytics. Rob, what is good this week? Hello, Nadia. Welcome. Welcome, well, to, welcome. welcome to us. Welcome to uh, this You welcome me us. and I welcome you. <laughs> Rob, last yes. week was the Grammys. Did you, do you have any thoughts on that? Last you week was them? the Grammys? Yeah. Was it? Uh, no, I did not. I, I, I saw, you know, obviously some of the headlines and a few things there. Obviously, I saw like the most bubbled up. prominent thing was, was Jay-Z. Oh my um, gosh. Yes. I, most people would say the most prominent thing was Tracy Chapman, but you you're saying Jay Z. <laughs> uh, well, I, in, what's what I saw? What I saw was Jay Z's uh, speech. Yeah. Okay. And what were your thoughts on it? Well, I didn't go back. I didn't even know what he was talking about. Um, okay. So I don't know. What, what are we talking? What are we talking well, about? Well, okay. So let me. Yeah, let me give a little thoughts here. So um, Jay Z accepted the Dr. Dre Global Impact Award. And while uh-huh. he accepted the award, um, he addressed the Grammy Academy for past slights in the rap categories and for repeatedly snubbing Beyonce, his wife. Okay, um, so and, he was talking about Beyonce. And, yeah, he was talking about Beyonce in the All Genre uh, Genre Album of the Year Award. He mentioned how subjective the decisions are. And I don't know, Rob, like, I kind of, <laughs> I mean, listen, say what you know about Jay-Z, but like, I actually think what Jay-Z was doing is actually pretty powerful. Like he's addressing the bias in decision-making, like the mm-hmm. lack of transparency or the, sure. the rubric in decision-making. Like I think he was doing what he was doing was shining a light on the disparities um, in those decisions and subjectivity in the awards. And I think it's pretty incredible. Yeah. Well, I think he's, I think he's right. I think, but you know how I feel about, it. we've talked about it. You talk about the Oscars and the Grammys before. What I feel about totally awards for art are subjective. Right? They, they totally just, they flat out are. And so, you know, I think the point that he's making is if you look at the voters, they are probably disproportion- disproportionately not. Uh, they're probably disproportionately white, older, right? Maybe not. Maybe not listening to the genre, into, right? Yeah, yeah into what Beyonce is doing. To the you know, left, and then, to the left. Yeah, and, and you know, I I love Beyonce, but you also then have to go back and say, okay, okay, what years was she up for album of the year, and sure. do we believe that that she was slighted? Because sometimes, right. you know, people do bet, you know, in a particular year, yeah. you may just get beat, right? Totally, like this happens in every award, right? I remember, uh, I'm old, you know, Susan Lucci never won like an Emmy. Yeah, she was nominated that's right. like 19 times. Totally. Daytime so, Emmys. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, so anyway, like, I, I don't want to necessarily knock the folks that, that, uh, beat her in those particular years. He's yeah. probably right to call out, uh, the subjectivity and the bias in the voting of right. how these things are determined for sure. Right. And he looked great. Like, that's what I number one. He like, did look like, great. Damn, so did their daughter. Good. Yeah, totally. And, <laughs> You know, some of the just highlights of the Grammys, I know we're not at the deets yet, but I did want to highlight some other things. So Tracy Chapman sang her song Fast Car with Luke Holmes. That was a really beautiful moment. Um, What else? There were several firsts. So like Miley Cyrus and Taylor Swift became 
um, they kind of had their first in terms of like Miley Cyrus. It was our first ever winning of the Grammy. I don't um, think that Taylor, should happen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know who she was. Competing, I don't even know. That yeah, was like a highlight. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Taylor Swift became the artist with the most Grammy wins for the album of the year. And this is my favorite. Annie Lennox sang a tribute to Sinead O'Connor and proclaimed, quote, artists were seized by our peace in the world. End quote. I just thought that was a beautiful moment using your platform. Okay. Amazing. So what's going it. on? You know, I didn't watch it either. I just saw clips. <laughs> <laughs> it's so late on a Sunday night. Um, all right, Rob, what's going on this week? All right. So this week on Inclusive Collective, we're going to be talking to each other, Nadia. We're going to be talking about Zoom's DEI layoffs, new research on remote work, how the census measure disability and child labor and supply change. Later, I'm going to rant about age bias, one of my favorite topics, and Nadia is going to rave about an award-winning music educator. But first, Nadia, let's do it. Let's get to the deets. What do you got? Let's get to the deets. All right. So, Rob, what is something most of us use on a daily basis? Uh, Toothpaste. That is true. But I also would argue that most of us use Zoom. Oh, right. <laughs> so according to Fast Company and Bloomberg, Zoom followed in the footsteps of many of its peers in the tech industry and laid off 150 of its employees in an effort to redirect its resources and invest in what the company described as crucial areas of the future. Mm. One of those teams that was impacted, they were deemed unnecessary was a group of employees that were working on diversity, equity, and inclusion for the organization. In an email, the COO emphasized that Zoom continues to be committed um, and focused on inclusion, but they would right. focus on bringing on external consultants. Thoughts, Rob? Well, first, when you sent me this, I thought that it was going to say that they're cutting back on remote workers or that they wanted everyone to come back to the office, which yeah. I thought would, <laughs> that would have been awesome if Zoom yeah. wanted everyone to come back to the office. Um, so... But no, I think that, so it says, you know, DEI teams now, we're going to focus on consultants. I don't know, you know, how the, what the amount was. I didn't see the actual statement. Um, but what it could have been is I'm the CEO. I guess you said the CEO, which is already starting to get weird. But it says, I'm the CEO. I'm responsible for DEI. I'm going to make sure that all of this happens. I'm going to make sure that we hold people accountable, that we get to the commitments that we made previously. Yeah. And we may use experts to guide us you know, in our journey, but I'm, sure. I'm, I'm responsible now. So I think that could work. And I think ultimately that's something that, that could happen in, in a way that people feel good about it. Sure. Uh, certainly not the folks that are getting laid off, but, um, yeah. but in terms of the folks that are staying there, that's probably not what they're doing, but I think that, you know, ultimately uh, there, there's a way for, you know, for us to pull back on our internal investments to DEI departments and still advance the goals it just doesn't that doesn't seem like it was happening here. So it seems like it seems like, hey, we're still committed, but we're just going to get rid of all the people that know what they're doing uh, with regard to DEI in our organization. Right. Like the strategic. Well, that's 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 a really great point, too. Right. Like you could still continue to embed a lot of these practices and principles into the work and everyday life. And then you don't need a DEI committee or group or team or department. And, and so I'm not saying that you can't do that or that you shouldn't do that. But I do wonder um, what was in like the strategic plan and what is the, um, what will be the impact? So also just kind of, um, just something to consider zoom brought on its chief diversity officer, um, a person named Damian Hooper Campbell in June of 2020, when Mm. (laughs) most of these roles are being hired for, 
um, and published its first diversity report in 2022. And then um, Damien Hooper Campbell left within 22 months and was never replaced. Okay. I think that's interesting, too. So I think this is quite actually quite significant. You know, it'll be interesting to watch the rest of the players in the tech f- industry and field and other organizations that kind of see the tech industry as role model um, and how they follow. We already we already are seeing it, right? Like we saw it with um, X or, you know, your <laughs> previously known as Twitter. Um, they got rid of their DEI group because of their um, CEO. And then I think it's also part of like the broader conversation and considerations of, of the conservative and cultural pushback that we're seeing. So I think we got to keep an eye on this this year. Um, for, we <laughs> do. I mean, I, I just I, I'm hearing it more and more. It um, sounds like the benefit of the doubt that I was giving the positive spin that I was completely wrong and off. And it sounds like these people are not committed at all. Maybe. Like and... I want to. Yeah, I'm, I want to <laughs> hope for the best and think that it is that yeah. positive spin. But I, I don't know if organizations are ready to actually make that big leap of embedding it into their their cultures. Like we work with many organizations and. Uh, this is a change management it takes it takes time it's not something that can be done overnight or even within a year so it's just interesting to me we'll see what happens yeah yeah well let's talk about let's let's move on to the next story and let's talk about uh another thing that uh takes takes time to take hold and some of the other things that we have from fallout from the uh from the pandemic in 2020 so according to new research from the fine people at warden <laughs> which I am told is the business school at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, work from professors David Sue and Prasanna Tambe, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Professors examine job postings and applicants from tech startups. They were able to determine through data and analysis, actually, uh, that when the same jobs went from in-person to remote, the roles got 15% more female applicants and 33% more underrepresented applicants. Uh, so a lot of confirmation of the things that we've been hearing, but this is a really nice study because they had data from, they started working on this from 2018 through 2022. Yeah. Uh, the benefits, of course, to these groups are time flexibility, location flexibility. Uh, you know, mostly they were looking at tech roles. And so the rules for tech jobs are primarily in five cities, mm-hmm. uh, San Jose, San Diego, San Francisco, uh, Seattle, and Boston, these are some of the most expensive cities in the U.S. to, to live. live in. And so, yeah. Um, yeah. and you know, I was actually just thinking about how unhealthy living in Boston was uh, this week. I was talking Were to someone you? about it. Yeah, oh, I was wow. like remembering my days there, and like, yeah, oh, that's an unhealthy place. But oh wow! And uh, it also limits face-to-face interaction, limiting microaggressions for some underrepresented groups. Nadia, yeah, what are, what are, what, are, what are you what are you thinking? Well, right now I'm thinking why you hated Boston so much. <laughs> why you thought it was so unhealthy but um i get it um yeah so okay so the study was focused on the tech startups i personally love this study like when i read it i was like oh we definitely have to talk about this because this is an ongoing conversation right now um so this you know when we think of the tech startup space or the tech space in general like this group this this industry already has an underrepresented number of women and minorities mm-hmm. right when we think of like stem or or steam is what folks are calling it now um listen like to me like i said this is a nonstop conversation and i'll say that there are some people who really do appreciate the social aspect of going back into the office and having that flexibility maybe to work hy- hybrid um i think there are people that like like the focus and the less distractions that are maybe at home but Others, I think, have really gotten accustomed to a remote work setup and 
and maybe feel more of like this work-life balance, right? I, I, I too, Rob, like this past week, I had to drive only seven miles up the road at 8.30 (laughs) in the morning to a client visit twice, Monday and Tuesday. And it took me over 45 minutes to drive six miles. Like, and I, and I literally was driving home that day, called my sister and was like, and she reminded me, she's like, you did this five days a week when you worked downtown in Boston. (laughs) I wasn't even going downtown. And so, you know, I don't have the answer. I, I do believe it all really depends on like, organizational team dynamics, right? So I love this study for that. I, I think it's actually really important for managers and teams to read um, to read this, to have some yes. insight into this, this study. Yeah, it confirms a lot of things that we know and or suspected and uh, intuited, right? So I remember I was talking to someone about the first days of the pandemic and I was, you know, you know there was this realization that, wow, People can work from anywhere and get stuff done, right? And it was like it was just like an unheard of thing, and people totally. didn't, didn't feel like it was possible. Um, and then there was a scramble to hire people, and I was working in DEI at the time, and the, the realization was like, "Wow, we can go get people that are different mm-hmm. from who we normally have, right? Like right. we can actually, we can actually find people that we say that we can't find. Like, they're, right. like it's a giant country. We can go find people." Yeah. Um, and everyone did. And now, even though we have a lot of data to the contrary, the idea that people have to be in an office, it's just it's just really embedded. It's really hard to shake for, you know, certainly for I think it's somewhat generational. Right. So right. I was telling someone if I was starting a company today, I think it would be remote. I think the way I would approach it is it would be remote first. Right. It would mm-hmm. be like remote first and then add. Right. So find ways to bring people together socially, but start with the premise that. We're going to find the best people everywhere and we're going to make it and we're going to build on the social interaction and we're going to build the culture that way. I think that's a smart way to do it. I think it's sometimes it's hard when it's already embedded in your in your culture that Mm -hmm. an office is important. Um, But I think that folks that are starting companies now are trying to think remote first, then build social connections. Sure. Um, But yeah, this this is really interesting. I think it's worth a read for sure for people. Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more. Nadia and Rob on Inclusive Collective. Hi, folks. Welcome back. So we are doing um, our our Deets episode here. Um, so, Rob, I was like really looking forward to hearing your reaction to the story. So according to NPR, the U.S. Census Bureau says it's no longer moving ahead with proposed changes to how an annual survey produces estimates of how many people with disabilities are living in the country. So the um, so the American Community Survey uh, currently asks participants yes or no questions about whether they have serious difficulty with hearing, seeing, uh, hearing, seeing, concentrating, walking, and other functional abilities. And then to align with international standards and produce more detailed data about someone's you know disability the census bureau had proposed a new set of questions that would have um, asked people to rate their level of difficulty with certain activities based on those responses the census bureau was proposing that its main estimates of disability would count only the people who report a lot of difficulty or cannot do at all and Mm -hmm. that will leave out those who respond with some difficulty that particular change in the Bureau's testing found um, could have lowered the estimated share of the U.S. population with any disability by around 40%. So it would go from 
13.9% of the country to 8.1%. That just seems like significant to me, Rob. And, you know, help me understand this a little bit better. I know you like, you know, this world and data. Is it significant? Like, what do you think? What's like, what are they doing here? (laughs) Well, I think that I think that the folks that uh, are against this change, obviously, that's a very that's a very big change. Right. And so uh, I don't know where it came from. I don't know what the need for the change was. And 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 it seems like the way to classify folks in terms of having a disability seems like it's somewhat outdated in terms of how they're thinking about it. Um, So I don't I. It's, I mean, that's that's obviously a big drop. You know, I think these imp- these things impact how resources are allocated and uh, with, you know, with regard to federal agencies as well. So it seems like it's a big change now. They you know, but this is also a story of how government's supposed to work. Nadia, mm-hmm. Right. Like so they they uh, were going to go ahead with this change. They had 12000 comments that came back from people, the majority of which were don't do this. This is wrong. And they deferred and they said they would study it more and then think about, you know, what the best uh, way to do this is. Right. And so, you know, I'm going to keep saying this all year, not and you're going to get really uh, tired of it, but it matters who runs the government. Right. And so Mm -hmm. you at least have a chance that you'll be listened to. Right. And so these are the tiny things that we don't think about. We do not think about this on a day to day basis. Right. But good luck. Right. in, In having your your opinion listen to if you're a person that, uh, you know, if you're a person with, with some sort of disability uh, and you're worried about how resources are allocated by the federal government, yeah. good luck if Donald Trump becomes the president of the United States, right? If these are the type of people that are in charge of our executive branch. So I, it's, it is a big change, but I think it's a good story in terms of being listened to by the folks that are trying to make this change. Yeah. All right. All right. Thanks for that, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> You're still reflecting on that? that? I am. I am. I was like, oh, man, you're going to talk about the next article. And it's a lot about government, too. So I'm just like, oh. (laughs) Yeah, there's a little bit more, a little bit more. So um, McDonald's, Costco and Walmart were among the companies mentioned in a New York Times article this past week on how companies are stepping up their efforts to crack down on child labor in their supply chains. Uh, so uh, hundreds of thousands of children have come to the U.S. without their parents since 2021. They've ended up working in dangerous jobs in factories and slaughterhouses. Uh, companies use auditors in supply chains, and they have, uh, I'm, I'm assuming they're not, they're not great and they've missed uh, kids uh, on, these, on these different audits. Uh, the auditors say they can't necessarily keep up with demand because there are so many kids working in these type of roles. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to talk about this on the heels of our, we talked about prison labor in last week's show. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's not uh, unreasonable that a company which has you know, thousands of suppliers can't know everything and they rely on their auditors. But what did, what did, you, uh, what did you think about? Well, in all full transparency, I wasn't able to read the article because oh, my right. New York Times was a little bit finicky, <laughs> but... You know, my my initial reaction is like, wow, McDonald's, Walmart and Costco have been in the news a lot lately. Um, and, you know, I guess good on them to really get a better understanding of their supply chain and process. Um, and, and in all seriousness, like I'm I am reminded by our conversation last week, um, you know, when we talked about the forced labor with incarcerated people, it, you know, both of these stories is exploitation to the max. And you know, just one final thought, like I, I, I personally have be- become a little bit more conscious around 
where like my good the goods that I purchase and the foods that I purchase come from and who's involved in that supply chain and that process. And it is really a hard thing to understand sometimes. It can be very unclear um, unless it's actually put on the package that like this did not go through, you know, any sort of enforced labor or mm -hmm, mm -hmm. child labor um, or if the company itself kind of declares that. And, you know, I'm I'm not a politician. Thank God. <laughs> but, <laughs> not yet. But, not yet. Not no, yet. never. But um, th but there's so many root causes of this particular problem that like need to be addressed and solved for. Yeah, I mean. I think you hit it in terms of it's really hard for a company. I get it, right? Like, like they, a lot of these companies that they pointed to have explicit policies against forced labor or child labor being in their supply chain. Mm -hmm. And so they, you know, they have auditors and the, and the auditors, you know, there's an opportunity here for the auditors to, to, to grow and uh, maybe mm -hmm. someone's getting the auditing of, of child labor business. Uh, there's an opportunity there, but, um, but, the government has a role to play too. I thought that that was one of the things that you're going to touch on as well, right? So the yeah. Department of Labor, they need to audit this as well, right? Like right. they need to be in these factories right. and slaughterhouses. And so just the idea that we would never even fund the Department of Labor mm -hmm. to the way that it is needed in order to be able to find this stuff, you know, it's something that that would be a non-starter. I mean, like even I would say even both political parties would would hesitate to, to fund this type of uh, auditing, inspection, and enforcement. So sure. it's an interesting gap in our priorities as a country, um, you know, and, and we really rely on these companies to really think about how to to figure this stuff out and get it sure. right. So we hope that uh, that they invest a little bit more of their resources to, to, to finding uh, child labor in their supply chain. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for that, Rob. Um, that is it for the deets, but we will be right back with our raves and rants. Stay tuned. I don't like the stay tuned. Stay with us. Stay with us. Stay with us. Stay tuned you on your radio. Booper. <laughs> Welcome back, folks. It is that time for Rants and Raves. Um, Rob, you got the rant uh, toss here. So what do you got oh, for us? What do we toss? We tossed a we silver tossed dollar. <laughs> silver dollar? <laughs> silver dollar. Do those still exist? I, well, they exist. <laughs> I don't make them. Um, all right, Nadia, okay. I'm going to talk about something. Again, something I'm going to talk a lot about this year, okay? okay? So you may have heard that the special prosecutor... Uh, released his assessment of President Joe Biden's uh, handling of classified documents last week. Mm -hmm. A lot of the criticism has been around, you know, that it seemed to be somewhat politically motivated. I was more offended on behalf of everyone in their 80s about how it was written and the language that was used. It was okay. really very broad, very broad, uh, uh, infantilized, uh, you know, people in their 80s the way it talked about them, right? And so, again, with any luck, right, we will all get to be there at some point in our lives. Sure. Um, I think that we know that older Americans experience some of the most blatant dis discrimination, mm -hmm. uh, especially with regard to the workforce. Uh, and so we're going to continue to see throughout the year this denigration of age, uh, you know, as we talk about the election. And I just invite everyone to push back uh, on the media, but also just in our, our everyday discourse. Uh, I find it, I was, I was just like, 
wow, this is where we're starting, you know, and I think that we can do a lot better talk in terms of talking about people in terms of their performance versus, you know, being uh, very, uh, you know, making these very broad assumptions about people in their 80s. Yeah. Thank you for that reminder. I, I truly appreciate it. I had a colleague this week um, who is in her 60s and she was sharing with me some some kind of um, discrimination that she's faced. Yeah, I think it's a great um, reminder to encourage folks to to be a little bit more open-minded. Well, that was a good right. rant. Right. Bring <laughs> us me, back. I'm going to bring us full circle back to the Grammys because apparently that's the thing. <laughs> that's what I was, what, was like, really excited about talking about today. So the Music Educator Award, um, which is presented um, by the Recording Academy and Grammy Museum, recognizes those who have made a significant contribution and demonstrate a commitment to music education. So um, it was shared in NPR um, this week that this year it, the award went to Annie Ray, a performing okay. arts department chair and orchestra director at Anna, Annadale High School in Fairfax County, Virginia. She was honored for her efforts to make music accessible to all students, particularly those living with disabilities. She created the Crescendo Orchestra for students with severe intellectual and developmental disabilities, as well as a parent orchestra that teaches nearly 200 caregivers a year to play the same instrument as their child. I thought that was like mm. so beautiful. Wow. So this teacher, Annie, got to meet, of course, a ton of celebrities at the award ceremony, the Grammys, and then took home a $10,000 prize and a matching grant for the school's music program. So I thought that was just a beautiful and lovely story in general. Yeah, yeah. She gets to meet Justin Bieber? No, I think she did meet Taylor Swift, though. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I, you know, in our show you last You're like Justin Bieber. Yeah. Is like <laughs> last week I made a comment about Justin Bieber, and there's, you know, got a lot of, got a lot of pushback on that. And so that may pushback. have been a little bit harsh. Yeah. Uh, so what I wanted to say was that Adam Levine is the one that lacks the most talent of all oh people. wow but, bold yeah, that's what okay. i meant to say is that he, that's Adam that's Levine. the real <laughs> okay that's the real person i just all like right. to take shots at people <laughs> robin you know what i know that you celebrated your birthday last week but your birthday is actually this week so that's right it's actually as this episode <laughs> comes out today so yes uh thank you so much i jumped the gun a little bit so you did uh, so yeah we meant to say last week happy birthday to our our uh, producer and editor Ari Bethay, who uh was actually had a birthday whereas i just jumped the gun and i'm celebrating twice so you uh, are and that's yeah. okay yeah. yeah it's okay it's all right um all right that's it for inclusive collective uh just a reminder that if you're looking for de and i and workplace culture strategy consulting problem solving or training you can reach out to Nadia at Nadia at NazConsultants.com and Rob at Rob at TacanoConsulting.com. Cruiser Collective is a production of Refillion Media and edited by Ari Maffei. We'd love to hear from you. Send us your feedback, questions, comments, inclusive collective at Refillion.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Uh, be sure to check in with us on LinkedIn because then you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter. If you like what you heard, uh, please be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcast. Thanks again to my friend, Nadia Butt. That's it. We'll be back next week. Happy birthday. Thanks. Thanks. 
With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.